Welcome to the Sheila Kham Extractive Podcast. My guest today is Stuart Kay. Stuart is president of International Law Institute in Washington, D.C. The Institute is an independent NGO founded in 1955 at Georgetown University. It has affiliates and projects in other countries and works with lawyers and other officials in about 180 countries. The NGO addresses challenges of law and economic development. Tens of thousands of officials have participated in the Institute's training programs in the United States and around the world. Stuart, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. I look forward to our conversation today. Thanks for having me on the Extractives Podcast, Sheila. It's really an honor to join you. And I should note for our listeners that Sheila has probably forgotten more about international negotiations than I'll ever know. But I'll add my two cents from a uh, legal and quasi-academic perspective, and I'll mainly be talking from the context of interactions between a host country sovereign and an investor, usually but not necessarily a private party abroad, not really about international financial institutions like the World Bank and others, although that's relevant too. Um, and typically between a developing country government entity or parastatal and a private company uh, from a multinational or wealthier country. If I may reference negotiations between countries where I have a little experience from the US government. But thanks again, Sheila. That's wonderful. Well, that's exactly what we are looking for, though I think by the time we are done, uh, the listeners will know that you have been somewhat modest. But let's cut to the chase. You know, uh, Stuart, when one thinks of negotiations, the image that comes to mind is the room in which the negotiations take place and the loss of the host country. However, while this is very important, the ecosystem is much bigger than just the room, much less the host country. Am I right about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll get to that ecosystem in a minute. But first, that, that image of a negotiation is a kind of poker game played across a table may be a small element of a negotiation, but I think most negotiators know that the preparation, all that research prior to any actual sitting down to negotiation is the much more critical element. Uh, there's a famous old uh, case study from Harvard Business School about a multi-party negotiation involving eggs. We occasionally used it in our old uh, International Law Institute course in negotiating foreign investments, which was an eight week course back in the old days turned out in the case studies that the two parties competing to buy eggs from a producer actually wanted them from different and non-competing reasons. One company wanted egg whites and one company wanted egg yolks. The negotiating teams in the exercise that figured out that their interests were not entirely competitive were able to come to a very mutually productive resolution. I'll note that ILI was focusing, even beginning back in the 70s, on how both sides can come to a mutually agreeable long-term solution. And this is well before Roger Fisher and William Urey at Harvard developed their superb book, uh, Getting to Yes. Now, so that, that, that's quite interesting. Please. So when you say that, of course you train uh, people from all over the world. So what sort of things have you done to try and help people migrate from that, uh, if you wish, perception, which is from your point of view, not entirely correct. Sure. Um, now, 
in, in real life, of course, that, that eggs example, you know, you're, you're not likely to find so perfect a solution. My underlying point is that you as a negotiator need to come to a negotiation very, very well prepared. And that means not, not, not just knowing what you want and the range of options you'd be willing to consider, which of course you have to do, but as exactly as possible what the other party really wants and why. So lots of research is required. There, there should definitely never be a winner and a loser in a negotiation. That's a recipe for disaster down the road in these kinds of large international negotiations. The deal should last years and make both sides you know, happy. Both sides need to be satisfied with the result. Back when we started doing negotiation training for developing country officials, back, this is back in the 70s, but before I was with ILI, uh, the programs would always include uh, faculty representatives from large multinationals like Union Carbide, Freeport McMoran, then Mobile Oil, JP Morgan, and others. And at first, this is considered a little radical, as there was some suspicion, even here in the US in the business community, that, oh my God, you know, why should we be sharing our secrets, you know, what we want in our deals with the other side? And Eli's response, and I think we were absolutely correct, was that this is an opportunity for you big American or multinational companies for you to explain to the countries where you hope to work, and this in a non-competitive situation, an ILI course, what you really want, how you work, how you go about developing a project, how you value it, what matters most. If your counterparty actually understands your motives, history, and long-term goals, the likelihood of a successful long-term outcome is gonna be better for both sides, and it'll be a much better deal forever. And I have to, I'll just add one quick thing. I think this is of renewed and critical importance right now, particularly with some of the massive infrastructure projects being developed in Africa and other parts of the developing world. And there are some large non-traditional investors in play. Let's put leave it at that. If, if, a, if a large company or financial institution with extremely close ties to a large and wealthy sovereign comes to a developing country with an offer to build a major rail line, they may be looking at more than just a good financial return or investment or access to specific mineral resources at the other end of the rail line. What are the long-term strategic goals? It may not even be noted in a negotiation or part of a contract. They will matter to you and you should be conscious of them. They may be more important than anything you discuss in the negotiation or anything you sign in your contract. Hmm. Interesting. You, you made reference to the ecosystem. I wonder yes. whether you could just succinctly give us the uh, component parts of this ecosystem. Of course. Um, while negotiators from developing countries will have the greatest familiarity and just sort of used to dealing with laws of their country, if a company comes from, I don't know, let's just say the US as, a, as an example, uh, that country, company is going to be deeply concerned with its own country laws. Will it be violating anything? I mean, you think of all sorts of anti-corruption laws. So, so they, they are conscious, the US laws are very much in, their, in the back of their minds. Also various kinds of bilateral agreements. These could be bilateral investment treaties, very significant and, and I'm, I'll come back to them later. Free trade agreements, you know, a, a bits on steroids, you could call them. tax treaties. There are lots of these around. Um, they all have very important context to what a company is going to be willing to do and have the kind of agreement they'll be willing to make. There are also all sorts of plurilateral, multilateral agreements. Think of World Trade Organization, 
various regional trade agreements, which are, you know, proliferated in a very interesting and productive way around Africa, uh, and lots more. I mean, we're all watching the evolution of the African continental free trade area very carefully. Hard to overstate its potential impact. Uh, and, you know, most investors coming into X country are going to worry about that broad ecosystem a lot more than the local laws, which frankly, for most companies, I mean, local laws in a given host country are basically viewed as something to be avoided as much as possible, but I'll, I'll get into that a bit later as well. So uh, th that's interesting because on the balance, it, it, it is fair to assume that wherein sovereign states view negotiations uh, through this uh, lens of national laws, investors add this international dimension. Uh, in your experience, you know, what kind of problems, this, this, this failure to recognize uh, this divergent point of departures, in your view, um, can you explain why uh, international companies focus on this international dimensions and, and how that impacts the negotiation dynamic? Sure. I mean, one of the main, uh, I'll just use one very salient example. In a, uh, if there is a bilateral investment treaty between your country and the, the country in which uh, an investor is coming from, there are going to be all sorts of things that you as a negotiator need to be very aware of. Um, you are, it, won't, you, it won't appear in, your, in the contract you're negotiating. However, if anything goes wrong with that contract, that bilateral investment treaty can basically be used to haul you know, your, your country into arbitration at uh, uh, any of the var various uh, fora for arbitration. So th that context is kind of the, the, the hidden backdrop to uh, almost any major international uh, commercial agreement between a sovereign and a, a private investor. So when you, you mentioned earlier research, these are, if you wish, some of the in-house research uh, undertakings. In other words, yes. before a sovereign country goes into negotiations, you know, take a, a, a sweeping uh, look at what other agreements you have entered into previously, Absolutely. which, whether stated or not, will become part of the environment in which the agreement you reach is administered and, and, and defined in legal terms. Yes, and it, it has the impact of law. I mean, it is something that countries have signed up for and uh, you, know, you, you, you better be aware of it uh, before you sign anything. Because what, what you don't know can hurt you. Yes, ignorance. Uh, the law doesn't uh, uh, accommodate uh, ignorance or for that matter, lack of memory. So uh, let me ask, so we, we've acknowledged that we have a sovereign point of departure and then we have uh, the multinationals point of departure. And that at some level, uh, they, they don't reconcile. How do you think these two points of departures can be reconciled such that there exists a common frame of reference for investors and negotiators representing the state? Sure. Um... So for reconciliation on a common frame of reference, uh, be aware, and I mentioned this before, that foreign investors want, understandably, to avoid local laws to the extent it's practical. Uh, don't take it personally. 
And two, please understand that any agreement a host country may make could be subject to a lot more international than you may realize, as I mentioned. I think if negotiators representing the state realize that investors seek certainty where it can be found by laws, by international agreements, they will, there will always remain other variables, sort of marketing and pricing shift and a host of other risks uh, that are tough to address via contract. But a key to understanding why an investor may seem to focus so much on a particular negotiating and contractual issue, um, you know, maybe beyond the bounds of sort of, an, of a national law. So in, in uh, you know, facilitating this knowledge uh, transfer and, and better understanding, what has your organizations found particularly challenging in your attempts to help lawmakers uh, based in the, your goal of aligning legal frameworks with uh, the broader concept of economic development? A very interesting question. Um, most of the International Law Institute's work is on the, the training side of the equation, but we also help national governments work on uh, legal reform, and we work with all sorts of government agencies uh, you know, on improved regulation and their own uh, processes sort of to roll out the laws and the regulations. For example, a procurement law has been a favorite area of ILI for many years. I mean, it's one of those areas which sort of is in our space because it really gets to how governments interact with the private sectors. Um, but for sort of specific challenges, um, so many. I mean, it, inertia uh, is of course one. That, that, that's, that's true the world over. Um, you know, that's not a, a developing country conundrum. I mean, it always seems simpler to, to keep things as they are than change them. Uh, also, where, where inefficiencies sort of in, in law and their applications exist, there tend to be opportunities for people to benefit in ways that don't necessarily benefit the broader society. And if there's a threat to remove those benefits, people will strongly resist. Um, I've worked over the years in modest ways to assist a number of countries improve court processes. This is just a, an example that could be put in, in many kinds of laws. I won't mention the country, but in one place, uh, we were supporting the computerization of administrative processes in the courts. That sounds pretty innocent, but if it makes documents publicly available, well, uh, people won't like that. We'll try and disrupt that modernization. For example, administrators, uh, court administrators, in this country, and I'm sure in others, uh, it was rumored would sometimes make paper files disappear, maybe for a price. Uh, judges might slow down a process, uh, which has implications for any business transaction. Um, it could be out of inefficiency, it could be for other reasons, but in any case, um, you know, there, you know, I, I, I don't think it's ever really broad ill will on the part of any country. But uh, there are always, you know, human factors. Uh, they say whether it's um, liking to keep things the way they are because it benefits you, or just sort of sheer inertia and the, the lack of desire to change is, you know, frankly the the, lar the larger uh, the larger challenges in this space. So uh, coming back again to this uh, potential tension between laws and uh, what they are intended to achieve and economic development, especially through exploitation of extractive resources. Uh, what advice do you give legislators who, like yourself, 
you know, would like to see negotiations leading to economic development outcomes, but uh, may not be approaching it in a way that will achieve the desired uh, goals. Uh, okay. I think my first reaction here won't be a technical one about how to craft laws. Well, that's hard. That's, that's rarely the biggest problem. But, but a more public-facing point. Um, the thing that I wish would happen in more countries is that the public, and by public I mean individuals, companies, educational institutions, are all part of the economic spectrum. I wish there was more understanding about how extractives laws and the foreign investments they bring impact the nation, both the pluses and the minuses. I mean, allowing a broader range of people to understand that these mineral resources, an important national patrimony, matters to them in very real life ways, but I think push legislators in a better direction. If legislators know that people are watching, I think it will make for better results. Of course, in making laws, it's not just the legislators that are involved. Government agencies of all sorts have important parts to play. Um, on the international trade side, this isn't extractives, but I have a lot more experience on the side. I know so many cases where a government will start to negotiate uh, an, important, an important agreement, whether it's for WTO accession or a free trade agreement or whatever, without involving the private sector. To, to me, that, that's, it's, it's madness and, and a path to failure. Um, regarding legislators and extractive laws, I sometimes wonder whether there's enough contact between legislators of different countries. I mean, if, 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 I, were a, if I were a legislator, which I'm not and I'm unlikely to be, in this case, one of my first steps would always be to talk to legislators in other countries about what in their experience has best impacted economic development and how. There's, there's, there's still, to my mind, too much of, let's hire some foreign expert from London or wherever. At this stage in 2021, speaking specifically about Africa, there's a vast amount of expertise within the continent. It, it, this kind of expertise is not just housed in huge international law firms or well-known consulting firms. And, and of course, there's, there remains an uh, unneeded mystique about experts who come from far away. Uh, but seriously, but for anybody listening, how much more expertise could you want in extractives than what someone like Sheila Kama has. You know, her level of experience and expertise is actually scary to me. Uh, one final, final point in this space, to anyone who doesn't know about the African Mining Legislation Atlas, AMLA, please check it out. It's an extraordinary resource. Project, it was a project initiated by the World Bank, but now managed by the African Legal Support Facility. And a ALSF is an independent international organization affiliated with African Development Bank. It's chock full of model clauses for laws. Plus, and actually more importantly, it contains a lot of commentary on those laws and those, that, those, that, those model laws. Yes, you're right about AMLA. AMLA actually is really a, a one-of-a-kind product, uh, not only because it, it, you know, it contains all the mineral laws of, of the 54 African uh, states, but also that feature for feature, you can compare clauses and decide on aggregate which, which way you want your national law to sway. 
and, and, and not only does it contain mineral laws, it also contains all other ancillary laws uh, on environment, fiscal policy, and so forth. So, I mean, you are, you are right to flag AMLA because it really is uh, something to be uh, proud of. I had the pleasure of being involved with it, uh, both at the African Development Bank and the, the World Bank for that matter. So I, I do have to state up front that perhaps I'm conflicted uh, in that respect. But listening to you talk about the importance of including the public as one of the drivers of effective negotiation, I'm reminded uh, of uh, two things. The first is the simple notion that a service provider is only as good as the person demanding the service and that person's knowledge of what they are entitled to and demanding it. And, and, and so if you think of uh, national negotiation teams as service providers to the public, the more the public understands, the more they know the public is watching them. Uh, my sense is that you are right. The more they are likely to be on their toes and, and, and on experts. This is uh, also very <clears throat> true. I think uh, uh, Sheila Kama notwithstanding, I have a, an inherent discomfort with the notion that 60 years after the first African country became independent, there is the belief that you still can't find people who can just sit around the table, do the research you spoke about, understand the, the strategic perspective of multinationals and come to the table equipped to negotiate successfully. I think th that narrative in my view is flawed and, and it doesn't really do justice uh, to the need to build capacity. But, but we can talk about that uh, some other time. The one thing you mentioned when talking about AMLA reminds me of this notion of model agreements. What is a model agreement and what is the purpose for uh, that it, the, a model agreement serves, uh, Stuart? Sure. Um, I think model agreements of all sorts can be very useful. And this is whether it's, you know, for uh, a law, for a contract, you know, for whatever. But it's it's important to understand what they are, how they can differ, and how they can and should be used. This will sound like a digression for a second, but I promise it is not. Uh, when I was at university long ago in Connecticut in the US, a friend of mine owned a, a fancy French restaurant. And since I was from Maine, a coastal state to the north, I'd occasionally bring them masses of fresh mussels and lobsters. And I got to know the chef, Serge, a Frenchman, a Cordon Bleu trained chef, Amazing guy. One day he showed me his cookbooks. They're in French, of course, but all they did was list the ingredients. No amounts, no cooking times, no temperatures. But the writers of that model agreement figured that if you had that book, you must know enough to use that model. So I think that that carries over to the kinds of model agreements, contractual ones we were talking about. If you have a model agreement of any sort, please be aware of your own limitations. As a, as a lawyer, I've occasionally, in the brief time I was in practice, would use model agreements in areas where I wasn't you know, a full-blown expert. But I understood the likelihood that I'd miss or misunderstand something. So I accepted that my use of those model contracts could not be at the final and that an actual you know, expert 
really was needed to, to address the, 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 the final version. But if you have a model agreement or a model law or a model treaty or whatever, great. But, but in, I hope that it's a document with lots of commentary, as we were talking about AMLA a minute ago, and not just a raw model, but, but please don't believe it, it will be enough to provide you with a final answer, particularly if your counterparty in a negotiation is deeply experienced. I want one a further aspect of this, of, of the utility of having some kind of model to start with, is that if you are a, a developing country negotiator, it's an awful lot better to go to a negotiation where you have a model, even if it's fairly framework of what you want, rather than just you know, taking something from some massive foreign mining company, because they will know exactly what they want. Mm. That's interesting because when one thinks of a model agreement, uh, simplistically, most people think of it as a form you complete. But what you're saying, it, it's just a guide. Uh, first, you must know is limited. Secondly, yep. rather than have a model agreement, it's better have a model of what you want and then walk that back into the uh, negotiation room and keep ticking you know, the elements of what you want in agreement and see whether progressively you are achieving that. I, I think that is uh, quite interesting. How common are they, these model agreements in extractives or, or other industries for that matter? Sure, and this is, I'll, I'll admit this is getting beyond my area of expertise, but I, I, I had a discussion recently with an old law firm colleague, Boris Dolganos, and I think you know him, Sheila. And he was telling, you know, we actually did work on a, 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 a model mining law a couple of years back, but Boris, saying that these they're becoming more and more common and he thinks they can be useful but again with some limitations um hmm. and he's largely worked with sovereigns in their dealings with foreign mining investors and he, he knows that he, he'd worked on both uh, the the model agreements that sierra leone and liberia use and he's sort of familiar with one that mozambique has now and he, he thinks they're you know, very very useful to have as starting points but further to my earlier point they're not going to provide you with a final answer or a total guide. You, you, you need to have that to sort of frame your thinking and then add your own expertise, you know, even, even if you have to hire it from somewhere else. Mm. Uh, you, you, you know, I want to take you back to something you, you spoke about, Eli. You made reference to bilateral agree, uh, treaties. Yes. Yes. Uh, uh, we didn't really uh, follow that conversation. Can you explain to the listener what is a bilateral treaty and, and why is it such an important part of the bigger negotiation ecosystem? Right. Thanks for pulling me back to that. Um, <clears throat> a bilateral agreement in its most sort of simple definition is an agreement decided between two countries. It's a formal international agreement. Um, at its most simple, it could be on the economic side, it could be an agreement to against double taxation. The US, for example, has this with a, a lot of countries. Um, then there are, to kind of hop over a few inter intermediate ones, bilateral investment treaties um, are very important. Although, interestingly, the US doesn't have all that many of them, um, particularly with developing countries, um, which I'll, I'll, I'll throw in, a, a, a handy bit of legal advice here. Um, if someone's in a negotiation with a US or, or even other countries and 
you find that they're going to be doing the deal through, for example, a, a Dutch entity, whether subsidiary or some sort of special purpose vehicle. I can almost guarantee the reason they're using another country is that that country has a, an advantageous bilateral investment treaty with your country. Um, and why does this matter? Uh, it matters particularly when you get to disputes under a contract. Bilateral investment treaties basically make it very easy. For, let's, let, this isn't the term of art, but to bring countries to court. And if, if for example, uh, X country in Africa has a bilateral investment treaty with the Netherlands and uh, X country in Africa decides, well, we really need to raise the tax rates on uh, the mining companies that are uh, investing and digging in our country. Um, you're going to, within a month, basically be contacted and saying you're in violation of the bilateral investment treaty you have with the Netherlands because you can't make changes to laws that have an, a, a negative impact on the agreements you previously made. And I think there are an awful lot of cases where suddenly a country finds itself in an exit arbitration and thinking, what do you mean we can't raise our taxes? Um, you know, a number of countries, I mean, South Africa notably, uh, but others are, are, are rethinking very significantly the content of these bilateral investment treaties. And I, you know, there are lots of other kinds of treaties that are important, but I think in the context of mining agreements and, and other Know, very high dollar investment items. These bilateral investment treaties are where you really, uh, you really need to sort of focus your attention as, as part of any negotiation. So when we started, um, you made mention of research. Uh, and I'm reminded once again, uh, just how, you know, central and how core that statement was, because this is exactly the sort of research that if uh, company X says we will negotiate using uh, Dutch or Swiss laws. You better know what arrangement you have with either of those sovereign states, and you yep. better check the agreements and align them with your own strategy of what you want and see where those treaties constitute a weakness on your side and potentially a strength on the people with whom you are negotiating. So it's almost like it's a telltale the minute they choose a jurisdiction, you know it favors them in some way. The, the, the research you do then is in what way and how does that uh, place me at, at a disadvantage? Is that the, the point you're making? Yes, very, very definitely. And, and I think the, the kind of research, uh, you know, may, may be more broader and more creative than uh, one might typically think. I, I would, you know, wh where do you want to look to see where things have gone wrong? Um, you can find a lot just in the, the records of, you know, uh, ex, it, you know, the World Bank has a dispute resolution body, International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes, ICSID. Uh, you know, just a browse. I mean, generally speaking, private arbitration documents are, are not available or only minimal amounts of information are publicly available. However, if you look at the, the sort of ICSID records, just seeing the broad outlines of subjects where things have gone awry is a very interesting kind of, it, it, it may not be substantive research on how you can best draft a contract, but if you can see a bunch of cases where things have really gone to hell in a very expensive way, 
and very damaging to development way. I mean, I, I think that's sort of a place outside the normal bounds of research that you could find very interesting things. And frankly, thinking World Bank, um, actually just browsing around the World Bank's website is, you know, for anyone involved in development is always a, a mind blowing exercise. There is so much information available about national laws, about model laws, about projects and how they're designed. Um, that I, I, I have to say, I, I view the bank as the, you know, and, and not just because they're an old employer of yours, Sheila, but uh, I, I really do view <laughs> them as the sort of the, the single critical information resource um, for people to look at. And, uh, you know, and because it's not, it's not an academic institution, you're not gonna see theoretical stuff, well, maybe some, but you will see stuff that is happening, stuff that's based on experiences uh, in which the bank has been involved and others. So that's just a, a little th a throwaway comment, but, uh, but there you go. Yeah, no, that is very interesting. So uh, listening to you again, it, what I'm hearing is uh, something I've seen as uh, a very common um, error on the part of negotiators. Negotiators focus on what they can get and not on where they're exposed to risk now and in the long run. And, and so because they don't focus on what might go wrong, they don't do research on what have other people who have walked this path experienced and, and what were the pitfalls because they don't come into the room with that mindset. They're more focused on how big a cake can I get. They, they get a big cake now, but no sooner do they start implementing the agreement, the wheels comes off. Yeah. And that cake's just kind of like, I, I think that is, uh, you know, certainly very important. Let me ask you one final question. Because this notion of jurisdiction uh, comes up from time to time in terms of, you know, in case of dispute, uh, which laws will apply. A lot of uh, representatives of emerging migrant countries are, feel very injured because they feel, well, we are a sovereign state. Uh, why uh, can we not use our own laws? They feel almost as if this is patronizing or just downright disrespectful on a diplomatic level. I mean, what, in being the pragmatist that you are, what is the answer to that sentiment of feeling injured? That's very interesting, and I'm, I'm sort of smiling hearing that because it's you know it's it's absolutely understandable that people at first blush would take this as an insult, but it really it shouldn't be taken personally or nationally. There, there's there's no colonialist or political or intellectual um, insult intended. It's just these are big companies. As big as they are, usually, they want to make things as simple and as understandable and uh, as, as they possibly can. And they want to have the highest degree of certainty possible. Uh, frankly, particularly for in the area of commercial laws, um, laws and practices in the US are, and the UK, other places, are, are quite highly developed. Uh, another aspect, you know, even though in most countries, African countries, the laws and the economic activity are, they're pretty good as written. The problem 
I think for most companies coming into developing countries is their worry is more about the application of the laws. And you know that uh, unfortunately means the, the inefficiencies and risks of using local courts. Uh, it's not to say that it's, it's, you can get a commercial case quickly through a US court, although I have to say arbitration is used in 90 plus percent of any commercial dispute in the US. But um, they want to avoid local courts. They want to avoid US courts. Um, and if you're going to use arbitration for big disputes, it basically has to be done under the laws of foreign countries for the sake of both enforcement and certainty. And I think I've referred once before that, you know, these companies, I mean, they're looking for, there are so many risks that they can't control. Market risks, I mean, currency exchange risk, you can probably insure against that to a degree. But, you know, the legal risks inherent in doing business in a, a developing country, the, the courts more than the laws themselves, I'll repeat. Um, it's just one of those risks that companies want to avoid at all cases. And I say they avoid it in the US too, by basically having every, virtually everything settled by you know, mandatory binding arbitration. Um, and so it's, so please don't, don't take it personal. I mean, I, uh, yeah, it's just companies are companies. You know, they're, they're, they're not interested in your personal feelings. Um, they just want to make things as straightforward and something that they can plan on as well as possible. There is true that uh, corporates can be very impersonal uh, in, in, in that um, they are in the room uh, to represent shareholders. They are in the room to ensure they give a return on the investment. They are in the room to reduce risk. And, and in many ways, it's almost as if, uh, you know, that is the extent of it. And, and whatever tools they can use to achieve that end state vision, that's what they go for. And, and I guess when uh, state negotiators understand this, in a way it's a good thing, because it's also a good reminder that they too must adopt that view. They too must, that, that must be that single-minded in their sense of purpose. And, and so I think remembering that nothing is personal but also remembering that uh, the stakes are very high and, and that you can't afford to drop your guard by feeling injured personally, because that detracts uh, from my experience. The moment you get personal in any business transaction, that is the moment you blink. And that is the moment the other person has uh, the better of you. So there you are. Yeah, it has been really nice speaking with you. Uh, I've enjoyed listening to you and you've reminded me of many things that uh, with a positive time one overlooks. So Stuart, thank you very much for joining the Sheila Khama Extractive Podcast. I think uh, the listeners are going to enjoy this. Thank you, Sheila. It was an honor to be speaking with you. Thanks a lot. <laughs>